Welcome to the moment that changed everything, where we interview notable creative people to gain insights into how they got started and learn more about the moments that shaped them and their careers. Today, we sit down with Jeremy Miller, brand strategist, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and founder of the brand building agency, Sticky Branding. Jeremy worked in a family business that was on the verge of closing before he discovered that it wasn't sales that was the issue, it was branding. This discovery led to him opening a brand consultancy, writing two books, and doing a lot of crisis management for clients. We associate creativity with art. Your ability to draw, your ability to sing, your ability to do the quote unquote creative skills. But an accountant who is brilliant at seeing the numbers and solving problems, that is the act of creating. In this episode, we talk about Jeremy's advice for businesses who are reeling due to the global pandemic, why companies should look within their own organization for creative answers to tough questions, and how this unique moment in history is the most opportune time for new businesses and entrepreneurs. Jeremy Miller, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, listen, um, we've had a bunch of guests on the show of late, and of course, we've all talked about COVID and how companies are handling this. Um, and while everyone has a pretty strong opinion, uh, I think you have formalized it more than anybody else I've seen out there, which is really interesting. It seems as though as people and companies, countries try to flatten the curve, you seem to be a little bit uh, a step ahead of that curve. So I want to I want to get into that. And um, at what point at what point at the, in the crisis did you see a real opportunity to pivot and help companies in this really tough time? Day one. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. The the uh, the the thing that happened. So when I look back to this, so the dates are really ingrained in my mind. So March 11th in North America is when the travel bans got kicked in. And then we saw NBA and MLB over the next two days got canceled. And so the first couple of days of this, we're really working with our clients on crisis communication. We're still open. This is our COVID-19 response, those types of things. But by the Tuesday, Wednesday, is that like the 16th or 17th? we already started to see the emergence of layoffs, retailers, dentists, things like that. We're starting to, to do that. And this kicked a visceral response for me. I've come from a family business that was in the recruiting sector and our business would go up and down with the economy. And what I saw happening that week was we were being plunged into a recession and all my programming kicked in. And I said to my clients, look, your business may go down as much as 50% in the next six months. What are we going to do about it? And so we didn't have formalized programming or thinking. It was just instinct of something bad is happening. We're going into a recession. You've got to be fast. You've got to act. And here's how. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's safe to say that uh... – the brands who are going dark are not doing the right thing. We had Michael Brenner on not long ago, and he used the term tone deaf um, to not really acknowledge the context of, of things. And and so why do you think that is? Why do you think that uh, so many brands and companies freeze up a little bit when they're confronted with something like this and um, and decide to either cut their communication or uh, kind of atrophy in the... Uh, in the communicating part of their uh, their branding? It's a great question. And, and I think the thing we have to recognize is it's a very complex question. I wish I could give you a simple answer on this, but what we're dealing with is a very much a business issue and a psychological issue. 
On the business side, not all companies have been affected equally. Some are thriving and some are surviving. And so the decisions they make are going to come from their context. If you're in, say, the restaurant or hospitality sector, you might be selling T-shirts that said, I'm surviving COVID-19 just to pay for your rent. It has nothing to do with the business. Whereas others are seeing this as an opportunity to, to innovate and pivot and do all these fancy entrepreneurial buzzword terms. So there's that business side. The other is it's psychological. What's different about this situation today is this isn't a financial crisis or an economic crisis. This is a health crisis. And what's happened is we've been smushed all the way down Maslow's hierarchy of needs into this fear and safety quadrant. And many of us have never even been there before. So how you process that fear is going to be very personal. And so what I'm seeing is there's really two segments. There's the business side. Are you thriving or surviving? And then on the personal side, you have a warrior mentality. Are you going to conquer this crisis? Are you going to rise up? Or are you in that other group that just, you feel like a deer in a headlight? You're either going to hunker down or, or, or try to hibernate or even take your, your chips off the table. But they're in that other group where you're the, it's that fight or flight response that you're not ready to just punch back as soon as this thing kicks. And so all of that leads to basically saying, Every response is nuanced because this situation is far more complex than I think anyone's giving it credit. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because throughout your career, I mean, we've seen we've seen economic downturns before. And of course, anybody who's lived through it has taken, um, you know, uh, has gotten a bit of an education. So it's not like it's that forum. But to your point, this is a little bit different. Um, who do you think? Who do you see out there who you think is doing it very well? And, uh, and you don't have to name names about who you think is doing it very poorly. But um, who, who do you think is doing it quite well right now? I'm seeing brilliant examples everywhere. Um, the, uh, and they, they all vary from varying different industries. But I'll take, give you an, an extreme one, a Canadian example. Uh, uh, one of Canada's largest CrossFit gyms is called Element Fitness. They're actually based in Mississauga. And when this crisis started, uh, basically every gym across the country has been shut down. So you go to there to get sweaty. Uh, but Alex uh, Sabiri, who's the founder there, got him and his team, and they did two things that were really brilliant. They said the first thing is they reframe their business. They said, most gyms think of themselves as a rental business. You buy membership, you get equipment. They said, we are in the service and community business. And then the second thing they asked themselves is, how do we create everything that's magical that goes on inside of these four walls and make it virtual? And they took those two lenses and within 24 hours of the lockdowns being initiated in mid-March, they came to their members with virtual programming. They then went to them and said, our key value proposition is our coaching. So you will be assigned to dedicate a personal coach. And then they created all this programming. Every night they've got uh, different programs going on from, that, that are not gym related from dance instruction to wine tasting to all the community aspects. And, and they've continued to innovate every single week of this crisis. The net result of this though is uh, a 92% member retention rate at full fee with a 9.8 net promoter score. So 9.8 out of 10 customer member satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And this is in contrast to all the other gym owners that have either shut down, panicked, or, or are trying to do things and just not gaining traction. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the most interesting part about that um, example that you cite is um, is the retention part at full pop. I mean, I think that a lot of brands, you see a lot of brands, which I think is the right thing to do. I don't think there's not a lot of I don't know if we're through the don't sell mode right now, the phase in which it doesn't seem like anybody's really trying to sell things, particularly if they're in sectors where um, it's not an obvious um, there's not obvious value that can be maybe driven. Um, but the retention part really speaks to, um, to, the, to the community. Um, how much do you think that retention of your, this example with the gym, how much of that retention do you think is, is loyalty that has been built up such that they look at it and they go, am I getting the same value as if, if I walk into that business and I interact with them on a, I mean, most of these people probably a daily basis. And um, and do you see that waning over time or do you see that waning with new members in this example? No. And so there's the, the the first thing you said, though, is in this don't sell culture. I totally disagree with that, mm -hmm. uh, because if you want to survive a recession, regardless of it's this one, a previous one or a future one, the most important thing you have to do is sell. Now, you can't do it in a way that comes across as opportunistic or icky, but if you don't sell, you won't survive. If you don't generate cash, you can't cut enough to, to keep the lights on. And so what Element did is two parts to this. So member retention is simply good, sorry, uh, member loyalty and past brand experience is simply goodwill. Their members want them to succeed and they will give them a chance. But that is only if they create a value proposition that's relevant and actually sell it to them and deliver. Many gyms had equal volume of member loyalty before the crisis, but they didn't act fast enough. They didn't uh, create uh, programs and they didn't go out and market it. Um, I'll finish the thought with one more piece of this. I, I spoke to Alex last week and he said they are actually growing their revenue now. They have brought on a set of schools as well as corporate programs that are delivering uh, virtual uh, programming to their staff and students and, and hockey teams, and those types of things. And this was a, a market they didn't know existed before the crisis that will likely stay with them afterwards. So they are actually now in growth mode bringing in new customers and new markets when the world is going to pot. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that comes up and has come up at our place anyway, when we talk to some clients. So um, I think some clients are looking at this as a temporary thing. And, while, and then you see other companies and brands who are embracing it such that they're really changing their model. They're going full bore. It doesn't seem as though maybe when the lockdown ends and we see this rollout of opening things up that they will revert to their old model at least not in the way that it appeared before all this happened so um what do you say to to companies or brands that look at this like we ha we were talking to a client recently who does an annual event it's a big fundraising event um and they were struggling with what to do because it usually happens in late summer what to do here and and a lot of the voices in the room were saying well look maybe by that time things would open up um so again we sort of, sort of see this bit of a paralyzing kind of uh idea here where um you could look at this as temporary and so you look at your solutions as band-aid solutions 
rather than really committing and evolving your brand and like this gym has done to create something that is is new and vibrant i mean i don't see those guys as 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 changing necessarily the script so much when things go back to normal it'd be interesting to know what they do have planned if it does right well i think what we're seeing today is it, it is people think it will go back to normal and there and i think that's short-sighted i i think there's a clear dividing line and it's before coronavirus and after coronavirus the reality is what was before coronavirus isn't going to come back and the people holding on to that is partially probably going through their grieving process to try and hold on to what they had and what we have to recognize is that significant seismic changes are taking place globally. We are going to be seeing changes in the way people work, the way we run events, the way we communicate, uh, and, and many different things. And so what I am seeing the strongest entrepreneurs do is almost have a forever mindset that they're assuming that this is our new normal. And if something changes and lightens up, that's just a pleasant surprise. But otherwise, they are innovating and trying to serve clients and customers and be incredibly helpful based on the tools and resources available to them right now. Yeah. And you know what? To, to, it's a probably a great place to segue into where those ideas come from. I know that you know, I've seen some of your um, talks and you talk about the creativity that lies within organizations. And you're big on, on, on telling folks that, look, it's untapped. You have that ability there. You're just not accessing that as a resource. And I think, um, particularly in this this time, it really it's really a call to action for companies and brands to get creative internally and really apply that in, in transforming their brands. So, so where did that idea originally come from? This idea of plucking creativity from uh, from inside your own walls. Well, necessity is the mother of all invention. Uh, I, uh, I started out, uh, uh, this actually originated with my, my last book, Brand New Name, which came out in October of 2019. And what, where that book originated from is we have a, an article on our website that generates thousands of visitors a week that are trying to name things. And they were calling us up asking for naming services. And we started out with that process of delivering brand naming and doing the creative work for ourselves, but hitting a wall in just terms of capacity. And we started asking the question, how else could we do this? And what I realized is that inside every single organization is immense creative potential. You are creative. Your team is creative. And so then rather than looking externally to consultants, advisors, and advertising agencies and everybody else to try and give you creative answers, why why not ask your employees and not just the marketing people or the management people? Why not ask your frontline workers, your factory workers, the people that are all around you? And the thing that's so exciting and brilliant is that if you change your mindset, especially right now, this whole playing field, we are in uncharted waters. We do not know what's going to happen next. So the best place to look for the ideas that you need to, to move forward right now isn't outside. It's inside. It's about bringing your team together, framing the challenge, and then saying, how can we go about doing this? And if you take a different lens and, and look at everyone on your team as creative, it is so liberating. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think when we look at the advent of, um, of self-publishing as it relates to companies and brands, 
creating their own content, um, it seems as though it's imperative for them to look inside their walls. Instead of, instead of looking um, elsewhere for someone to come in and try to absorb their culture and their business and then create content for it, you see all the, a lot of companies who are looking inside and kind of at least identifying individuals. It, within that idea of looking within your walls, I guess my question would be, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who will say to you, you know, look, Jeremy, we're, I'm just not that creative. I'm not that guy. I'm the left. I'm on the left side of the brain. Uh, I'm a numbers guy, whatever. Um, I'm assuming within this idea of looking within your own organization, um, you can identify the people who seem to either be a hybrid of that or are fully creative sort of people. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to say that there are some people that should be kept away from creativity, but creativity is one of those things that you have to manage, right? I mean, I can think of working inside agencies and some or companies and opening up the field to creativity. What kind of tools do you give them to help manage that process? If they buy into that idea, how do they harness it? Because I could see it be like herding cats at, at some point. It is, and it always is, and it should be. So the first thing is, though, somebody who says, I am not creative, I'm a numbers guy, or anything else. No, that's not true. So we associate creativity with art, your ability to draw, your ability to sing, your ability to do the quote unquote creative skills. But an accountant who is brilliant at seeing the numbers and solving problems, that is the act of creating. That is ideation. So how do you harness this? Well, there's very simple tools that you can use. So let me just give you one that I really love. Uh, it's called e-storming. So the next time you want to try and generate a bunch of ideas from your team, take an, uh, a question. For example, how can we be incredibly helpful in, in this moment in time? And the way you might frame your question might be, what knowledge, expertise, or resources do we have inside of our organization that could be of service to somebody else right now? And then pose that question out to your entire organization and ask everyone for 10 ideas. And they could put it in by email or a Google form or whatever it is, but have them all submit to a central repository. Now, the key is, is you want to be able to collect all of the ideas from everybody versus bringing them together onto a Zoom chat or a boardroom to, to brainstorm by allowing everyone to work on their own and then consolidate the information that will give you more volume of ideas. It'll take the pressure off of my idea is better than your idea. It'll also take the ego out of who said it. And that way you can take all the ideas, anonymize them, randomize them, and then bring them back to the group and say, okay, now what do we do with this? What are the best ideas? What trends do we see? How do we rank these? And I guarantee within that mix, there will be stuff you can use. Yeah, I think I think that's a big part of it. You know, I think um, there you need it. You need somebody who's who can assess ideas and decide which ones are best and which ones are maybe weaker. And although on the surface it seems as though that's a subjective kind of call, uh, I guess there should it should always be associated with a with a strategy. Um, I'm, uh, is your advice for people who are doing this process is to start with a strategy? Should that not be where it starts first? Yeah. And so that, that's part of this too is so strategy again, is fluid, but so the way brand new name uh, works as terms of a naming sprint is three steps. So step one, build your naming plan. What are you naming? What are the criteria for success? How will you know you get to the outcome when you need to test? So 
Strategies first, that's your foundation. It doesn't have to be complicated, it's just setting guidelines. And then second, we take you through a five-day naming sprint where we get the entire organization involved and we give everyone a quota, five good names per day for five days. And so everyone puts in their five names, you can gamify it. But the key to this too is to help people who are not usually creative, give them an exercise, give them some guidance. And then the third stage is process for testing and selection. Well, this mindset in terms of strategy, ideate, test, and select is what design thinking is all about. It's the same kind of, uh, of thinking here. But as a leader, what you want to try and do is set the conditions or the environment up so that you will get the best ideas out of people. You, uh, as the leader, might be defining the strategy. Or your management team might be doing that. So what is the problem? The clearer you can get to problem definition, the better you will be able to focus the ideation exercises on. And the other side of it is you don't need everybody involved in selection or execution. What you're really trying to do is get a wide breadth of perspective so that you have the right information and ideas to act on. Interesting, yeah. Um, in terms of how you got started, because I imagine, I imagine there's, there's people who want to emulate what you have done. Um, I know that you are working uh, with Leap Job, and that was a, a family business, and you helped turn things around there. At what point did you decide that you were going to change your career and and go down this road? Um, I don't see I don't see an obvious connection between Leap Job and what you're doing now, but maybe but I I could be I I could need to be informed by you. All careers are squig squiggly, right? Uh, so I start so my origin story started in high school when uh, I went to my parents at one point and said, you know what, when I grow up, I'm going to take over the family business. And unbeknownst to me at the time, my mom, I think, had a little bit of a heart attack. Went, oh, that's not what we want. Uh, so they went and they talked to their, their friends and other business owners. And, and what they got was advice. They said, you don't want to have your kids come off as a lucky sperm. So set some criteria for how they enter the business. And so for my brother and I, if we wanted to join the company, we had to have four years of work experience, a university degree, relevant experience, and we had to apply basically four years from the day from graduating, I applied and came on as the director of sales and marketing. Now I started my career in the software industry selling CRM software. Then I came into the recruiting industry. And one of the first things that happened to us is our business was being disrupted. And I, uh, and, and I came out of a very difficult first year and realized that what had happened was we didn't have a sales problem. We had a branding problem. Our customers couldn't distinguish us from anyone else. And we were facing the first onslaughts of uh, the web changing our industry. So the reason I got into branding is I was a sales guy who lost his competitive advantage. And I started studying everything I could get my hands on, every branding book, every marketing book. The problem was they were all about big companies like Apple and Nike and Starbucks. And so how does a small business with a marketing budget, which is not a vast one, use these ideas. So I consolidated it. We changed the whole company's brand. We implemented it. And I found out that I loved it. It was so much fun. Well, where sticky branding came from was our clients took notice of the work that I was doing and they started asking me to do advisory services. So within the family business, I built a consulting practice. And when we went to sell the company or when we started our exits, I spun out the consulting practice to form sticky branding. And then I packaged and sold the family business. So and after I did that, I looked back over my shoulder and said, what book do I wish I had at that moment in time? And that was the origin of sticky branding.
So the summation of this, to go back to your question is, so how did someone emulate me? Well, it's really chase the things that excite you, chase things with purpose because there's so much opportunity. I'm so grateful for the opportunity that my parents gave for me, but they didn't try to constrain me. I'm not in the recruiting industry for a reason. I'm doing what I do today and pivoting and evolving because I see an opportunity, I see something that interests me, and I just go after it as hard as I can. And I look back over my shoulder and go, huh, there's a story that connects it, but I probably couldn't have told you where I was going before I started. Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, to go circle back to one of our original questions, it was it was when we're faced with these challenges, there's one of two ways of going. You can either embrace it and evolve and see opportunity in it, um, or you can be a little bit paralyzed by it. If we look back at what do you think is going to happen when we look back at this COVID um, experience, this coronavirus experience? What do you think is going to come out of it in a very positive way? Um, and what are we going to take away that we're going to apply? What do you see happening um, out of this challenge, particular challenge that we're facing right now? I see this moment in time as the greatest entrepreneurial opportunity of our lifetime. In the span of seven weeks and counting, the entire playing field has been leveled. We have access to extreme amounts of capital and you have total freedom from your customers in the market to innovate and try things. If we go back to the stories we've told today, customers are very generous and, and open and everybody has a state of need. What's so unique today is the coronavirus has created a shared experience. Every person and every company from around the world is going through the exact same thing at the exact same time. And the only time that this could be possibly linked would be maybe going back to World War II, where you have a collective global experience. But even that isn't like this. This is very, very unique. So what I see coming out of this, and we already see it, are a whole suite of green shoots. And those are new needs are emerging, which are leading to new markets and new opportunities. And I truly believe that the companies that move fast and adapt quickest are gonna be creating new industries, new markets, and new companies that we couldn't have seen before coronavirus. And so what are they gonna look like? It's too hard to tell, it's too early to tell. Um, but I think the entrepreneurial opportunity right now is probably the greatest gift we could ever be given. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great way of looking at it too. And I know I was just speaking with my wife this morning and, and um, we looked at each other and we were like, you know, some of these innovative things that companies have done and the way that they've pivoted, we're really liking. Um, I could see, you know, you can actually see in the future of, of maybe, maybe when it comes a time of reopening, they're going to have to decide what they're going to retain uh, and what they looked at as a Band-Aid as maybe the new way of doing things. I mean, who's not going to want to be able to pull up to grocery stores and pop their trunk and have someone just throw their stuff in it. I know that exists in other places and it might not be the strongest example, but um, it's interesting that the, the, the challenges as things get more positive, the challenges will, will not go away. They'll just be new challenges that will challenge them to, to, to ask, hey, what do we want to retain here? Or what, did we, what were we missing before all this happened? Yeah, and those are these behaviors, and that's why I really don't think you can compare to before coronavirus. So um, these new behaviors, these are being formulated. Some are positive and some are negative. The, the, we probably never go back to the office work environment that we once knew. 
Um, and so that's going to be very difficult for some people because that's our social network. How do we recreate those types of things? But taking the, say the, the pick up and go type of uh, shopping. Absolutely. That's a realm of convenience that is, is incredible. So there's, there's a whole suite of needs that are emerging and they're going to stick around. And I think you got to look at it that way. And I think we can look back to previous recessions. One of the things that I find very interesting is if you look back even 2008, 2009, that recovery process, uh, the stock market recovered quickly, but the economy took several years to come back. And in that, you it's moving slow enough that it doesn't just turn backwards. So I'm anticipating that this economic recovery will track the, the, the recovery of the, the virus. And with that, it's going to be slow incremental change. So we're not going to realize we've changed our behaviors at the end of it all. It's funny. I mean, you you brought this up at the top of the the podcast, and that was that there's two things. There's the there's the emotional side of things, and then there's the business side of things. On the emotional side, I mean, we all know that human beings are social creatures. Here we are with very defined rules on how we're interacting with one another, and as things open up, we're going to look at that again. I mean, uh, if businesses are rolling around along pretty well now with employees working remotely and uh, doing things remotely, virtually. Um, I guess the question is, what balance will be struck coming out of this and where do companies start there? If they see positivity here, the answer can't be, well, 100% virtual, 100% Zoom calls, et cetera. Maybe, maybe some of them will. But, but I do think that um, on the emotional side, there are people who have adapted very well over the last seven, eight weeks um, but they still have a need there to to have FaceTime with people, to see people um, live and, and do meetings that way. What do you think about that balance? I really want it back personally. Um, I can say as the person that speaks at lots of conferences every year, having all of that that travel time, that social time, and that serendipity taken away from me is something that I miss and I would like it to come back. But even in the office environments, I don't think anything is, is binary. I think companies are going to restructure and come back. If I were to say any change that we're going to see, at least in the early stages, is what's most likely going to be different for us is that companies are going to be behaving more like hospitals in terms of their cleaning, sanitation, and social distancing. So we still need people to do work. And many times they have to come to an office or go to a factory or go to a warehouse or go to some facility to do their job. That's still going to happen. But uh, in that, we need to be conscientious that companies will reorganize to be what is most effective profitably and for their customer. Great, great answer. Listen, I want to wrap up with, um, I know you're promoting your book right now. Um, what else is going on that you're really excited about over the, over the short term? I know you're, you're helping companies and brands and, um, and you get a lot of fulfillment out of that. Is there anything else on the horizon that you're really excited about? Right now, almost all of my focus is on this idea of crisis marketing, which is what's emerged out of uh, this, this pandemic. And so crisis marketing, what drives my, my team is how do we help companies replace the revenue and customers taken by COVID-19? And after that, how do we set up the strategy in their brand so they slingshot through the recovery and come out even stronger? And so 
to me, I really see uh, we've repositioned all of our work to be crisis marketing and, and are focusing everything there because it, it, we're in this after coronavirus world. What we talked about six months ago doesn't matter. It's what we can do right now with each other to uh, rise in a very challenging moment. Well, it's, um, it's been great to sit down and talk with you about all of this. Um, as I said off the top, it seems as though you're the one who seems to be um, really formalizing this into, into something really specific. And I think there's a lot of companies out there who, who look at it and uh, haven't fully addressed the crisis and are still trying to figure that out. So it'd be best if they came and talked to you. Um, thanks so much for taking the time, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. And, um, and uh, stay sane. You too. And thank you so much, Steve, for having me on today. This episode has been brought to you by the National Advertising Challenge, North America's only brief-based challenge that sends winners to Cannes, France.